I'm now safely back in Israel and enjoying a few days of peace and quiet in quarantine. Welcome to episode 20. With the elections on Tuesday, we're going to cover a few items of policy and politics in the next couple of episodes. I hope it doesn't add too much to your stress levels as we approach these elections and what will hopefully be the end of the pandemic as we know it, at least for Israel. The first thing that we have to discuss before we can even get on to policy is why so little policy is ever discussed in Israeli elections. And it's not like we haven't had plenty of practice in the last couple of years. From early 2019 to early 2020, we had three. And effectively, they were all a referendum on the question of Rak Bibi or Rak Lo Bibi. Only Bibi or anyone but Bibi. My argument has always been that this should really be Lo Rak Bibi. It isn't just Bibi. That is to say that it's not just Bibi that's the problem. There is a political system that created Bibi and that he is now perpetuating, which is much more problematic. It's one in which we've allowed a parliamentary democracy with a prime minister, a coalition and a cabinet to essentially turn into a presidential system. And it suits Netanyahu to have what amounts to a referendum on his presidential skills and style. This allows him to deflect from some of the realities of his court cases and of the way in which he has ruled within what's supposed to be a collegiate prime ministerial cabinet system. Now, here we do have, like in most civilized countries, a presumption of innocence. So I'm not going to judge whether or not he's guilty of the criminal charges that he's facing. In fact, I think it's very unlikely that a conviction can be secured. I think there are a lot of problems with how the evidence was gathered, the way in which permits were given for the cases to go forward in the first place. It's quite murky. I think it's quite reasonable to say that there was a witch hunt against Bibi Netanyahu and his family. That doesn't mean that they're not witches. And evidence has been uncovered that, at the very least, was sufficient to merit these trials. So I think the trials should go ahead, but I think we absolutely should be scrutinizing the judicial system and the police investigation to make sure that it was done in an appropriate and above board manner that didn't single out Bibi and his family beyond what is reasonable and in the public interest to do more so than any other Israeli family. However, there is a case of breach of trust and breach of trust is not a criminal matter. That is to say that to convict somebody of a criminal charge, you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that something happened. A breach of trust doesn't work like that. It's a civil matter, and it's on the balance of probabilities. The Israeli system defines breach of trust using the basis in British law, as in it specifically uses all British case law and a relatively recent policy document that was drafted by the UK Parliament on this subject. It seems quite clear to me, having read that very substantial document, that 
Bibi has breached the public trust. Now, I know I said I wouldn't prejudge, so I'm not. I am looking at Bibi's own lawyer's defence of the criminal charges, and it effectively admits a breach of trust by the British standard. They are saying in their defence against the criminal charges, well, yes, Mr Netanyahu was in a room with these various people. Correct, no notes were taken, this didn't appear in these calendars, or these notes were taken but were not submitted in due course to the police. And yes, he did offer X or Y or Z, but he had no real intention of doing anything about it. This is just the kind of thing that happens behind closed doors, and so on and so on. In other words, whilst they are refuting the criminality of his behaviour, they have essentially accepted that this behaviour actually happened. Now, a breach of trust is a peculiar thing because there doesn't actually have to have been a breach. There has to be a strong perception that the public might look at such a figure and think that there could be a breach. In other words, that we cannot tell whether somebody who is in a powerful public position is acting in their own interests or in the interests of the state. We mustn't be naive. These are politicians and they have to be re-elected if they want to sustain their careers. And there's a certain amount of horse trading that must always take place. So no one is saying, well, there can never be a smoke-filled room in which a conversation on a theoretical basis takes place. But the whole point of the concept of a breach of trust is that politicians are required to police themselves very rigorously so that when those conversations even look like they might go beyond what is reasonable in the course of your political duties, that is to say separate from your ministerial or prime ministerial duties, that the public can still believe that you are trying to act overall in their interests and that you have not created a position where their interests are deeply conflicted with your own. In other words, it was never about the cigars and the champagne. It was about consistently asking for and receiving these cigars and champagne without saying openly to the Israeli public, yeah, I like cigars and champagne. My friends who are very wealthy know that I like cigars and champagne and that's why they keep bringing me these gifts and occasionally my wife and I ask for specific things that we like. Yeah, that's what we've done. And perhaps with a little humility, they might have got rid of this entire problem at the very beginning, nipped it all in the bud and not even had these criminal charges, had Bibi said to the Israeli public and to the authorities, yep, I get it, I can see why this looks like a breach of trust, I can see why after all of these many years I've been in power, I of all people should know better and should be more responsible. I humbly apologise for the lack of transparency or the perception of a lack of transparency that I have caused. And this is the independent investigation that's going to take place that will show that, that nothing was ever acted upon and that measures are now in place to ensure that the Israeli public does not have to doubt my integrity in these matters again. I, for one, as a centrist voter, with no great animus against Likud or even a Bibi as a political leader separate to these scandals, probably could have taken that into account and said, OK, I'm happy to continue with this guy in charge. He's really competent. He's a brilliant man. But I find it very problematic the way in which he has gone after, during his, I suppose, defence of his own position, the Supreme Court judges, some of whom were appointed under his watch, and the Prime Minister and the Knesset do have some influence because of the committee structure 
that makes these decisions, and the Attorney General, who again was his appointee. And I find this to be a very worrying precedent. The problem in Israel, though, is that I am in a minority almost of one with these opinions. The left demonizes Netanyahu, believes that all of this investigation from start to finish was totally justified, that there were many other cases that probably also should have been heard, and that this is a criminal prime minister. The right believes that all of these charges are trumped up. Even more disturbing, there is a large group within the electorate that says, so what? So what if these charges are true? It doesn't matter to us if he's carried out these criminal activities because plenty of other leaders around the world are doing the same thing. They have a very different understanding of what would be the norms for a democratically elected leader. Their view quite often, and I've heard this said, is he's been in charge for 10, 12 years. Let the guy make some money on the side. As long as his decisions are still in the interests of Israel, that's his prerogative. Much has been written and said about the fact that the majority of Israel's population, by background, don't come from Western liberal democratic traditions. Now, sometimes this feels like a very awkward and often borderline racist or certainly extremely white Ashkenazi liberal snobby argument to make. But I think there is a kernel of truth that you can't establish a Western liberal democracy in barely 70 years, especially in the middle of a series of existential crises as Israel has faced or certainly had faced until, let's say, the 1980s. So I'm not trying to preach my standards to everybody else and say, well, you're all fools. How can you not hold him to this extremely high accountability level? I get that, but it still doesn't help me with my own personal sensibilities about who I feel I can trust to lead the country in a certain way. I would struggle to vote for any prime minister in any country that appeared to be breaching the public trust. Which, as I say, although he has not been convicted and I will give him his presumption of innocence under Israeli law, it seems incontrovertible to me that by the British standards, that's what he's done. And certainly by whatever you want to call my moral compass, that is what he's done according to evidence that his own defence have presented. And that means that I cannot vote for him and I cannot vote for parties that are going to fail to hold him to account. That means that I'm quite happy to vote for a party that might even sit in coalition with him, provided they are going to be absolutely clear that he must see through his trial and he must accept the outcome of that trial. In practice, at least at this election, that means voting for parties who've specifically said they will not sit with him, because all of those who have said they'll sit with him have either said quite clearly that they are loyal to him or they've maintained a very careful ambiguity, such as Naftali Bennett. So for me, this is a matter of decency in public life. And I think that this is a cultural issue. We get the politicians that we deserve. Politicians reflect the makeup of the voters. And over time, the voters are influenced by the type of leadership that they have. So it's a cyclical process. After over a decade of Netanyahu, it's impossible to really see which side is turning whom, but I think we must give a huge amount of credit or responsibility, if you will, to Netanyahu for how 
the country now sees itself and the way in which aspiring politicians will behave. How can it not be influenced by Netanyahu? And how is any young person on a day-to-day -day basis, whether Rak Lo Bibi or Rak Bibi, supposed to avoid thinking about their moral behavior in the context of what is acceptable to and for our Prime Minister. And it's not like we're short of people with fairly high personal integrity to vote for on any part of the political spectrum. I think that Bennett and Shaked, although I disagree, for example, with a lot of their policies, are fundamentally decent people. And I think they've maintained a reasonably consistent line in their attitudes and their politics. I don't believe that they are corrupt people. I think the same is almost certainly true of Gidon Saar. I think it's definitely true of Yair Lapid, who sacrificed a great career in the media, where he was much loved, to essentially destroy his family life and all possibility of just going back to peace and quiet in retirement or back into the media to continue as a journalist to try and do what he believes to be the right thing and I think he's done so with integrity. I'll say something slightly controversial. I actually think that Benny Gantz has some integrity too. I think it comes with a ton of naivety. I think the reason why we're in the situation we're in is largely because he was so naive that last year after three rounds of elections, he caved into the pressure that he felt to form a unity government. He thought that he built in the belt and braces to make sure that there was an adequate rotation of that government and that minds were focused on dealing with corona. And unfortunately, he's been proven utterly wrong. And he's been generally very disappointing. But I don't happen to doubt his personal integrity when it comes to politics. One or two of his acolytes maybe the less said the better. I think unfortunately it's fair to say that Benny Gantz has been something of a useful idiot to very sharp and manipulative people around him for many many years. And similarly I look at Meretz and Labour who I absolutely wouldn't vote for but I do feel again that they have leaders who have at least some modicum of decency and integrity about them. Sometimes we may disagree very strongly with the language they use or the opinions they hold but I think that they are within the tent of decency. So really where we come to is that I'm arguing for some sense of humility and lack of hubris among our leaders. And I know that to become a political leader anywhere, and especially to do so in Israel, those are not necessarily characteristics that we associate with our leaders. But as I said, I think a huge amount of this debacle of Netanyahu and the cases against him could have been avoided with a modicum of said humility. Now that that's not the path he's gone down, and he's doubled and tripled down on his aggressive defense of his position over the last few years, I don't feel that there's any alternative but to vote him out. And it seems to me that the logical places to put that vote are probably with Saar or Lapid, depending on whether you are center or center right. And I suppose if you're really to the left, the logical place to go is Labour. As a matter of principle, I don't see why anyone would waste the vote on Benny Gantz. And although I've just said I think he's a fundamentally decent man, I think once again he's being played by somebody 
in remaining in the race when really he should have stood down by now and told people to vote for other fairly centrist parties. There's a real danger that if he slips below the threshold, he could hand another election to Bibi. So, in conclusion, and yes, it's taken me 15 minutes to get to this, I'm sorry. I can't bring myself to vote for Bibi or anyone who is going to sit in government with him and give him a hall pass. Because for me, my personal standards of what I think a leader should do from a perspective of integrity, Bibi is failing me. I also have plenty of criticisms of his policies or his lack of policies and a general view that after this long anything that he hasn't clearly started already is clearly not that high up on his agenda. I think increasingly his desperation to maintain power in the way that he has, which means more and more concessions to his coalition partners, means that even less can happen in terms of the radical changes of parts of our infrastructure societally and economically and physically that we might need they just can't happen under his watch and I think that's a double tragedy because I also think that probably he would be the exact best person to see through some of those changes he has a brilliant mind and I really grieve the lost Netanyahu for the last five years we could have had him changing this country for the better at an extremely rapid pace and to some extent I think we've been resting on our laurels and so has he because the pursuit of power for whatever reason seems to have changed him and I think that that is probably the most damning thing of all when it comes to him. He could and should in my view have been the next in the great line of Jabotinsky and Begin and then Netanyahu in terms of the pantheon of Likud heroes and I think that as a nation we have suffered and we will continue to suffer for the fact that Netanyahu was not Netanyahu in the famous parable of Zusya that's the thing he wasn't the most Netanyahu he could have been and God help us if this is the most Netanyahu he could have been what a waste and what a shame now having talked for this long I'm going to just give you one little bit of policy insight today and I will try and throw some more stuff at you in the next couple of days instead. So here is a short introduction to the idea of abandoning the printed and minted shekel and moving to a digital currency. I hope you find it interesting and as ever I am happy to debate, I'm happy to field questions. Please feel free to get in touch. A digital currency is not exactly the same as Bitcoin. In an Israeli context, a digital currency just means getting rid of the paper and coin shekel and having everything done on a completely electronic basis. So that can mean paying for things using your mobile phone or using a contactless credit card, or in the future that could mean a retinal scan or a fingerprint, or even just the way that you walk or the way that you talk or a scan of your face, anything at all that would allow somebody to identify who you are and to then take money out of your account to pay for small items right up to taking a mortgage for a house. Now, what would this do to the Israeli economy? 
in real terms, the GDP of Israel, which is currently sitting at something like $300 billion, there's about another $50 billion that's hidden in what's called the black economy. That's to say people who are not paying income tax, not paying VAT, not declaring for national insurance. It's a major hole in our economy. Now, the entire tax take of the country, by the way, is something like 24% of GDP. So in other words, if we were to collect all of the tax on that illegal money, we'd be able to reduce everybody's tax burden by 15 or 20 percent. So it has a personal effect on almost everybody if everybody plays nicely and pays it forward. The second effect that it would have is that it would enfranchise people who are currently cut out of the economy. And today they think they're doing very well by avoiding VAT and avoiding their income tax. But what they're actually doing is depriving themselves tomorrow of the opportunity to get real jobs, to take mortgages, to take bank loans for businesses and so on. So it gives them an opportunity to be included in the real economy for the first time. Then there's a further benefit, which is that we would become the first country in the world to move to this. There are probably one or two countries that are not far behind us. Singapore may well move to a digital currency. And in the event that the Greeks left the European currency, they would probably end up with a digital drachma, which would be very interesting. And again, that would be something we can sell to them. So we would establish some real financial technology leadership. And the last benefit, which I think is the most interesting, is that it would enforce some kind of better arrangement with our Palestinian cousins. It would force them to decide what kind of partner that they want to be economically. As it stands, they use our currency and we are effectively their central bank. So they would have to decide, do they want to continue with that arrangement? Do they want to set up their own central bank? Or perhaps we could give them the same technologies we're setting up for ourselves. And what that would entail is that they could have, call it the Palestinian Rial or whatever they'd like to call it. And based on GPS, as soon as one crosses the green line into Palestinian territory, your currency would convert on a one-to-one basis. And that would allow them to have the best of both worlds, a sense of independence, but, but not having to yet build a full central bank for themselves. But what it would do is it would cut out a lot of the corruption that they're suffering from. It would ensure that the various donors that are propping up the Palestinian economy as it stands would have complete complete transparency as to where their money is going. And it would definitely force them to treat us as real partners in the long term and the same vice versa. So that's just a a little starter on, on what a digital currency would look like. I'll be back tomorrow with some more policy ideas. If there's something you particularly want me to try and address, then feel free to get in touch through the usual social media. I'm not too hard to find. Have a good night.